Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lequeur. Today, no relief from rising food prices. If you think the pocketbook pinch is bad now, just wait until next year when grocery bills are projected to balloon. We'll scan some of those prices for you and check out the government's response. And system in crisis. We're throwing everything we can uh, at the healthcare system. Children's hospitals across the country are buckling under a respiratory virus surge, with Ottawa calling in the Red Cross and an Alberta hospital suspending respite care. We'll bring in top doctors to talk about the risks to kids. Plus, gun ban pushback. No matter how expensive their policies are, and no matter how much they target law-abiding hunters, it's not getting the job done to protect our people. The opposition and gun advocates say the government is set to ban many sport and hunting weapons. Now, the Prime Minister says the list isn't final and they're consulting. Are the Liberals walking back plans to ban certain guns? We'll ask Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Food prices are expected to be up $1,000 for the average family to 16 grand a year to feed the average family, an incredible sum. In fact, the Mississauga Food Bank reports that some people have even said that the poverty is so grinding they're asking for help with medical assistance in dying. We need to feed our people. If the leader of the opposition is indeed sincere in his desire to help lift Canadians out of poverty, he would have voted for measures like the Canada Dental Benefit or the Canada Housing Benefit or perhaps childcare. Well, the food fight spilled over into question period again today as the new Canada Food Price Report is showing grocery prices rising and they will continue to do so into next year. The report predicts increases will be seen right across all food groups. Original projections in 2022 were between 5 and 7%, but as of this September, Canadians saw an increase of 10.3% just this year. Now, B.C., was the only province not to see a double-digit increase. Quebec had the highest rise at 11%. Now, in 2023, a forecasted price bump is between 5 and 7%. Most provinces are expected to see boost to, to prices, with only Newfoundland and Labrador and Quebec projected to see below-average bumps. The report also notes that the supply chain issues are driving up costs, with the war in Ukraine affecting grain prices. Russia and Ukraine produce 27% of the world's exported wheat. And the Food and Agriculture Organization says the war caused wheat and grain prices to reach record levels. That's not really a shocker for anyone who has been to the grocery store lately, but the point is Canadians won't even catch a break on food prices next year. So what can the government do to help Canadians deal with food inflation? Well, let's ask our MPs. Joining me here are Liberal Associate Finance Parliamentary Secretary Rachel Bendine, Conservative Finance Critic Jazraj Singh Hallen, and NDP Finance Critic Daniel Blakey. Thank you all for being here. Ms. Bendine, I wanted to sort of put some math to you. We totaled up all of the benefits that the Liberals have announced and will be coming into effect. Into effect. So the kids' benefits for dental the doubling of the GST benefit and the housing top-up. That'll help Canadians deal with the, the crisis. This is something that your government has talked about. But if a Canadian gets the maximum amount under all three of those, that is only $1,617. The price that we are expected to see for an average family of four, for that the, right, the 
food price to rise next year, that'll be $1,065, leaving an average family of four only $552 at the end of the day for a total year. Is that enough for Canadians? Well, thanks, Mike, for, for crunching the numbers. I, I guess I would just note off the top that, you know, you're not including the, um, uh, the, the CCB, the, the Canada Child Benefit, which puts thousands of dollars back into the pockets of Canadian but parents. But that's something people are already getting. They, they are. And, and as you've mentioned, we've rolled out these, these newer measures, uh, in addition to increasing old age security. But, you know, to the point that you're trying to make, which is, you know, is it enough? Of course, we're seeing prices rise. It's, it, it's, it's never going to be enough. We want to be there for Canadians, which is why we put forward um, targeted measures um, in order to be there for particularly vulnerable Canadians and, and, and those that are having the hardest time making ends meet. But in parallel to that, we've also, um, you know, demanded that the Competition Bureau review um, the, the the prices at grocery stores to make sure that nothing nefarious is going on. And, you know, from talking to people, I know that we question whether or not, well, is, is the price of, you know, butter or is the price of, of this um, of this yogurt going up because um, because of something nefarious going on behind mm-hmm. the scenes or, or is it justified? What we heard today was testimony at the Agriculture Committee um, from the Retail Council of Canada pointing specifically as the main culprit for all of this, um, uh, Putin and the war that Russia started. It's not it's not for nothing that we called Ukraine the breadbasket of Europe. When, right. when the breadbasket of Europe um, comes under fire, literally, and, uh, and all of those crops uh, disappear from one day to the next, that is going to have an effect on prices on food. And that's why we think um, it's important that the Competition Bureau study this issue, but it was also important for Minister Champagne to make that call to the large grocery stores chains to ask them to freeze their prices on on no-name brands, and they did. I want to bring Mr. Hallett in. Now, I know that, that the Conservatives continue to ask for a cut to the carbon tax. At the same time, this report finds um, that high oil and gas prices do contribute to prices, but it also finds that the adverse effects on climate change will also affect crop yields and the such. So at a certain point, do you look at that and realize that maybe that's not the right call? Well, let's be clear, first of all, uh, the inflationary mess that Canada is in today is because of Liberals' reckless spending. And this was confirmed by the Governor of the Bank of Canada that said that because of the high deficit that the Liberals have racked up, each and every Canadian will be charged $3,500. That's $3,500 less for food, gas, and home heating in their pockets. And when we talk about this failed carbon tax, which is not really a climate plan, this is a tax plan, this same scheme that the Liberals came up with, supported by the NDP, has not helped them meet a single emission reduction target, and emissions have only went up. And it's also driven up the cost of gas, groceries, and home heating. But, is it, but let's say they do cut the carbon tax. Is that enough money to put in the pockets of Canadians who are dealing with all of these increases in prices right now? Well, on top of cancelling the carbon tax, this enormous deficit that the Liberals racked up have put, has put us into this inflationary mess. They shouldn't have... Uh, spent on the backs and the hungry stomachs of Canadians. And what do we see today because of that? We see paychecks stretched out further than they've ever been. We see one in five Canadians skipping meals. We see 1.5 million Canadians going to food banks, half a million of which are children. 
And we continue to see that they're, they don't, they're not going to stop the pain because they're going to continue to raise the cost on gas, groceries and home heating even further. I'm going to bring in Mr. Blakey here. I mean, there was part of this report as, all, as well, because I know that the NDP has talked about greedflation, uh, a big concern about that. And we know that there is going to be um, an investigation of that. But the report also says there's no, not currently any evidence that shows that there's any abuse by grocers. So does that sort of take a little bit of the wind out of your sales in that argument? Well, I would point you to a study that was released on Friday by the Center of Future Work that says after tax corporate profits in the last 12 months compared to 2019, which is the last full year before the pandemic, are up by almost 50%. And there's about 15 industries where those price increases are, are really driving that that number, compare that to less than 20% wage increases. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do still think that this is something that we need to talk about. And I think it's important that those grocery retailers were a committee today, because I do think that they have some real explaining to do when people are noticing these extraordinary increases. And, you know, Loblaws, for instance, is making an additional million dollars a day this year over its last best year of profit, not revenue, profit, mm -hmm. take home money after all their costs. So the question is, why do these corporate profits continue to escalate at such a crazy pace, far outpacing wage growth, uh, when we're being told, oh no, we're just passing on our cost to consumers. If you're just passing on your cost to consumers, then you can't be increasing your profit because all of your price increase goes to those additional costs. Clearly when corporate profits are soaring in the way that they are, something is going on. So I don't know where that truth is. I think that's why it's important right. that parliamentarians apply themselves to this, but also government needs to let corporate Canada know that this is not the time to be taking advantage Canadians. And if they're going to continue to post record profits, they're going to pay additional tax because clearly whatever's going on is causing them to be able to line their pockets while record long lines at food banks are happening. So something's yeah. got to happen here. Ms. Benign, I mean, I know you had mentioned this as well, so that investigation by the Competition Bureau. How important is it that we get that report very soon so that we can see if, in, if something is happening and we can stop it? Absolutely. Consultations are ongoing right now and end on December 16th. So folks have something to say. Now is the time to get it into the Competition Bureau before the report is out. I'd like to respond to, to what my colleague, my conservative colleague mentioned, because the food report today also pointed um, to the fact that extreme weather conditions and climate change are contributing to the increase in food prices. And so for the conservatives to come and say that we should abandon our climate action, that we should abandon the price on pollution, or if he wants to call it the carbon tax, you can call it the carbon tax. But the reality is that abandoning climate action will actually only make matters worse and only make food continue to increase in price. And so I would say that we need responsible economic leadership. We need to be there for Canadians um, through the support right. that they voted against. But we also need to keep our eye on the ball and fight climate change. Just as a response, I mean, can you do both at the same time? Uh, of course. And I agree with my liberal friend here that we do need a responsible leadership that we haven't seen yet. Again, this t carbon tax is a is a tax plan and is not a climate plan because if it was a serious climate plan, we wouldn't see emissions going up. We wouldn't see, we would actually see them hit a, a single target, which they haven't. Yeah. And on top of that, it's ironic that the Liberals continue to kick down the same energy industry that, uh, that also helped fill their government coffers and at least helped their books out. This is the same government that's uh, made energy a lot more expensive at a time when the entire world is looking for clean, responsible energy, a time when we see even home heating costs double right now. Uh, I'm, I'm just about to run projects. out of time. So, Mr. Blake, I'll give the last word to you on this one. Well, yeah, I mean, I think 
the big thing that you don't hear the other parties talking about, and unfortunately you don't hear the governor of the Bank of Canada talk about, is the role that corporate profits are playing in driving inflation. We need to see something happen that's going to take the wind out of those sails. And the way to do that, like some other jurisdictions have done, is to apply a windfall profit tax so that companies know that if they're going to make a bunch of extraordinary profit on the backs of Canadians in a difficult time, that they're not going to get to keep it. And that that money is going to be taken and invested back. I hear you, and I appreciate it. Daniel Blakey, uh, Mr. Uh, Helen Singh, and Mr. Singh Helen, and uh, Ms. Bendine, thank you all for joining us. I appreciate that. Um, from an affordability crisis, now we're going to move to the growing crisis at children's hospitals right across this country. After almost three years of COVID-19, now hospitals are dealing with a brutal flu season and a surge in RSV. Take Chio, for example. Just last month, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario had to open a second intensive care unit to treat an unprecedented number of critically ill children. And now the Canadian Red Cross says it is going in there to support CHEO staff. Now, the Alberta Children's Hospital as well is also buckling under the weight of flu cases and that RSV surge with wait times exceeding 12 hours. Over the weekend, BC's Children's Hospital briefly, briefly activated a code orange, which is typically reserved for natural disasters and mass casualty events. So what kind of help is needed at our children's hospital? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is the president and CEO of CHEO, Alex Munter, and the medical director of the Canadian Pediatric Society, Dr. Sam Wong. He's currently working a three-day clinic in Saddle Lake Reserve, Alberta. Thank you both for taking the time. Mr. Munter, I wanted to start with you. How dire is the situation right now at CHEO? Well, you know, it's much busier right now than it normally would be at the beginning of December. I would say that there does appear to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, it, is, uh, it is better than it was uh, two weeks ago. We, we continue to see a lot of uh, sick babies uh, and little children in particular that need to be admitted to hospital, many with RSV, although here in this region, it's different in different parts of the country, but in this region it would appear that uh, RSV is plateaued. Flu, on the other hand, uh, is still climbing. We went from end of October to end of November, posit test positivity rate of 10% at the end of October to 30% at the end of November, which was last week. Uh, so our message uh, again to everybody is uh, get your flu vaccine. It's a good match this year. Everybody's six months of age and older. So the Canadian Red Cross is going into CHEO. When are they arriving and what kind of help are they actually going to provide? Well, we've, um, we've reached out to many, many organizations, healthcare organizations across our region uh, and are, are uh, really pleased to be uh, getting people because basically this is a math problem, right? You mentioned we've opened a, a pop-up ICU. We've converted our medical day unit, part of it, uh, into uh, an inpatient medicine unit. We have unprecedented volumes in our emergency department. So we just need more people. Uh, part of that comes from redeploying our own staff, and part of that comes from getting staff from other organizations, other hospitals, uh, home care agencies, community health organizations, uh, and, and including the Red Cross. So there are many, many different organizations that uh, we're very grateful to. They're uh, helping redeploy people uh, to, to CHEO. Uh, in the case of the Red Cross, uh, we'll have two teams of nine. So there'll be nine people. Um, at any one time. So there'll be one team for three or four days and then another team for another three or four days. Um, and they'll be working overnight. They'll be working the night shift, which will allow us to um, send uh, some of our own staff that have been 
doing those night shifts back to literally their day jobs, mostly in clinics. Um, because one of the things that we want to do as little of as possible is have to redeploy our own staff because every time we close a clinic, every time we send uh, a surgeon or an anesthetist to work in the emergency department, that means we have to cancel clinic appointments, cancel surgeries, cancel diagnostic procedures, and we don't want to do that. So when we get staff from the Red Cross or another hospital or a home care agency, then what, what that means is um, we have to uh, redeploy fewer people, and that's good news for kids and families. Dr. Wong, I wanted to bring you in. You're joining us from Alberta, where flu season has overwhelmed the Alberta Children's Hospital to the point that the hospice staff are now helping out at the hospital. How critical is the situation there? It's pretty severe. I would have to say that when you're closing down respite care for chronically ill patients, um, to be able to justify expanding your beds in the hospital, um, I think it's a nursing staffing issue. And so if you're, you need extra nursing to, to provide those surge beds that they're opening up at both at Alberta Children's Hospital and at the Stoddard Children's Hospital, and they don't have the available nurses except to close down other programs, I would call that pretty severe. So I just wanted to ask you in the few seconds that we have left, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Wong, when uh, you're talking about, you know, we often see sort of healthcare have this provincial federal jurisdictional fight. Who needs to take ownership here of this issue in your province? Well, I think uh, the province's government has been somewhat quiet on this particular issue, and I wouldn't mind seeing more from the government. Um, I think, you know, as Alex was mentioning about immunizations, I haven't heard anything from the government talking about immunizations for uh, for influenza. I would love to see the health minister roll up his sleeve and get the immunization shot on TV. That might be helpful. Uh, promoting the vaccine would be helpful. I, I just haven't seen much from the government, and it's disappointing, I think, from all of us in healthcare and pediatrics uh, to see the, this quiet and silence from the government. Um, the silence is almost deafening when it comes to um, this particular issue from the government. And certainly you continue to sound the alarm and hopefully that silence will be no more. Dr. Wong, Mr. Munter, thank you both so much for joining us. We appreciate this. Thanks, Coming sir. up on Power Play, Major General Danny Fartin acquitted. What's next for the former head of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine distribution system? We'll find out next here on Power Play. The former head of Canada's COVID-19 vaccine campaign, Major General Danny Fortin, has been found not guilty of sexual assault. The charges dated back to 1988 when Fortin was attending military college at Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu in Quebec. Throughout the trial, Fortin maintained his innocence. From the start, senior military leaders and political decision makers presumed and acted as if I was guilty. I was denied due process. And information about my case was mishandled and leaked. The way this whole situation was allowed to unfold has irreparably harmed my career, my reputation, and greatly impacted my family. And CTV's Annie Bergeron-Oliver has been following the trial. She joins us now. Annie, 
Judge Richard Meredith was very specific in hounding down his ruling, saying that he believed the complainant was sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. but the judge felt that the Crown's case was lacking in identifying the person who did it. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's right, Mike. So in his verdict, which took about an hour to come down, the judge said that he did believe the complainant and he actually had sympathy for her. But he said that in a case like this, you can't make a decision based on sympathy. And he said that after hours of testimony for full days, he still felt that there was reasonable doubt that Denis Fortin was the accuser in this case. And so why, you may ask? Well, in this decision, essentially what he said, that over the four days, there were some contradictions on the part of the complainant. So, for example, um, at the very beginning when she provided her initial statement to investigators she talked about the fact that she had heard from Denny Forte and that she you know recognized his French accent immediately well later on she rescinded that and said that no she didn't have a full recollection of any type of conversation the complainant said that when she took the stand she was under oath and only wanted to provide what was a hundred percent clean and clear in her mind and so that's why there were some differences so the judge said that it did seem like there were perhaps some exaggerations and he ultimately said that it wasn't clear that there was enough light. The complainant in this case said that there was enough light, that she could clearly see it was Denis Fortin. The defense had highlighted the fact that there were 10% women at RMC Saint-Jean. The vast majority were men. And the defense was trying to point out that there are a lot of men who looked like Denis Fortin, who were relatively uh, fit, who had the same haircut, brown hair, and that in low-light situations, it may be difficult to figure out who was Fortin, who wasn't. And the judge said he you know, wasn't convinced that there was enough light in that bedroom to be 100% sure that it was Denis Fortin who was the accused. So any Major General Denis Fortin walks away a free man, but what about his career now in the Canadian Forces? Well, that really is up in the air. So Fortin today said that he's still on the military's payroll, but he doesn't currently have a job and hasn't since he was removed in 2021 as the head of Canada's vaccine rollout. He says that he's willing and ready to serve. He was asked whether he's considering retirement, and he said, no, not yet. He says that he wants to be back in the military. And it's important to note here that there is a federal court of appeal case that's expected to be heard sometime in the coming months. He has filed a suit against the Public Health Agency of Canada, saying that his dismissal was because of political interference and that he was not granted due process. So that case is expected to be heard sometime in the coming months. And it's clear that Fortin wants to get back to work. He wants to continue serving. And it's unclear at this point what that will mean. I think we're just going to have to wait and see. In a statement that we got from D&D earlier today, it said that they're aware of the decision that happened today and they're just going to be evaluating uh, the situation. CTV's Annie Bergeron Oliver, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate this. Now, to another story we're following, while Canadians brace for even higher grocery bills in 2023, the affordability crisis is also on the minds of Canada's big city mayors as they gather in Ottawa today. Every one of them is calling on the federal government to take concrete steps to help with housing, infrastructure and climate. Those are the asks uh, that they have for the spring budget. But what about the immediate and urgent needs. What do mayors want the federal government to do right now? Well, let's find out. Joining me now are Calgary's mayor, Jody Gondick, and Halifax mayor, Mike Savage. He's also the chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus. Thank you both for joining us. Um, so I want to ask you, Mr. Savage, after meeting a number of the ministers today, what were some of the takeaways that you have and, uh, you know, some of those specific asks? 
Well, you know, we're, we're pleased with some of the progress that the federal government has made on some of the big issues. So recently we saw the first ever adaptation strategy on climate. We're seeing another rollout of the Rapid Housing Initiative. We're waiting for the Accelerator Fund on housing. Every mayor, as you said, around the table today wants action on homelessness. We've talked about this for years and we have not done enough. We have fellow citizens who are dying in our, in our cities, who are living in tents. It's not acceptable. And that's a message that we had with Ministers Leblanc and Hussein today. We're meeting with the Prime Minister in the morning. Um, we've talked with him about this before. Um, and we look forward to having a conversation with him. And, and that's really, I would say, the biggest discussion point for all of us as mayors is housing, absolutely. Supply, mm -hmm. yes. But homelessness is such a crisis for people in our communities and we need more action. What is that specific ask of the Prime Minister going to be tomorrow? What do you want, it, for it to be a success, what do you want to walk away well, with? Well, we'd like to know what, what's in the Accelerator Fund, which is a $4 billion fund, which is an important part of it. Uh, we also want to know what more can we do for people who, who are homeless. And we have to work with our provincial partners, absolutely. They're, they're in charge of things like, uh, in a lot of the provinces like my own, they have the mandate for homelessness. They have health. They have mental health. They have a lot of those uh, responsibilities. So we, we just have to get past all these jurisdictional arguments mm -hmm. about who's at fault and start looking at solutions. And in my experience, mayors are problem solvers. You know, we're not problem perpetuators. And right. we're less concerned about jurisdiction than others. But we frankly don't have the fiscal capacity to solve these problems on our own. So we need the feds and the province to come to the table. Mayor Gondek, I wanted to ask you, a lot of what you guys were sketching out today were priorities for the federal government in budget 2023. But a lot of your citizens are dealing with affordability issues right now. What do you want to see from either the federal government and other levels of government to fix that for your citizens today? Well, I can tell you in Calgary, we just wrapped up a budget debate where we reinvested in our community quite heavily. Not only did we put more money into our downtown revitalization strategy, but we put $19 million toward mental health and addictions. We put money towards housing and homelessness. And that is frankly not our jurisdiction, if we can use that word. So I'm very interested in figuring out uh, which orders of government want to be good partners and offer us some match funding so we can take care of our citizens. When you talk about partners in government, I wanted to ask you about Daniel Smith's uh, new act, the um, Alberta Sovereignty with the United Canada Act. Now, the Calgary Chamber of Commerce has already said that this could impede investment. What's your message to her and, and how concerned are you that this could impact your city negatively? I'm incredibly concerned that we are creating a situation of uh, instability at a time that we need certainty and predictability when it comes to investors looking at our city. As I've said before, we have invested a quarter of a billion dollars in our downtown strategy and just bumped that up by another 50 million. We cannot have people walking away because the provincial government is creating uncertainty. So my ask to the provincial government is let's create some stability. If you want to push back against Ottawa, feel free to do so, but you don't need to do it in a way that you will limit the ability for cities to deliver on action for citizens. I want to ask both of you. Um, last month, your colleague, Mayor John Tory of Toronto, had um, said he asked the federal government that they need urgent money to, um, uh, for funding to prevent cuts to service and tax increases. Um, and he blamed COVID-19 for lost revenue. Are, are you seeing the same kind of lost revenue in both of your cities? I'll start with you, Mayor Savage. We are for sure. So... In the case of John Tory and, and, and all of us, for example, transit is an example of a service that we have to provide. We don't have the luxury of, of cutting it. It's hard to get bus drivers right now. And 
COVID has had an impact on ridership. The ridership is not back to where it was, but we have to continue the service. That's not a cost that, that we should bear the burden off alone. That's a direct, still a result of COVID. Um, and public transit is very important. And, you know, when you look at the food security issues that our citizens have, and all cities, it seems now, including Halifax, are putting money into providing temporary supports for people who are homeless. That is something that we need assistance with. So Mayor Tory was 100% uh, correct, and he talked about that today with us at the caucus. Mayor Gondek, I wanted to ask you, is this something that's incumbent on the federal government, though, to make up for the shortfall? It's certainly helpful. They're the ones with the greater opportunity to help us out. If we can leverage some of their money, we will certainly do our part as well. But when we're facing major operating shortfalls when it comes to transit, when it comes to our community and rec centres, we really do need a hand, and COVID had a lot to do with it. Mayor Jyoti Gondik and Mayor Savage, thank you both for joining us here in studio. We appreciate it. Good luck with that meeting tomorrow with the Prime Minister. Coming up on the eve of the 33rd anniversary of the Polytechnic shooting, MPs spar over changes to the government's controversial gun bill. Are the Liberals now going after hunters and sports shooters? We'll get answers from Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino right after this. just put forward uh, a list and we're consulting with Canadians on that. We're hearing a lot of feedback around concerns that uh, hunters uh, are saying about guns that they use more for hunting or uh, hunting rifles or shotguns. Uh, and that's what we're listening to feedback on now to make sure that we're not capturing uh, weapons that are uh, primarily hunting weapons. The problem is not the, the hunter who in uh, Wainwright, Alberta, or Happy Valley Goose Bay uh, in the East Coast is using his tools to feed his family. The problem is illegal guns coming across the border. Why won't they re reinforce our border instead of attacking our hunters? Well, the debate over guns is back in the spotlight and back on the floor of the House of Commons as the government's current gun control legislation makes its way through Parliament. An amendment to Bill C-21 at committee stage is raising alarm bells amongst the Conservative Party and gun rights groups. The amendment would enshrine a regulatory ban on assault-style weapons by including an evergreen definition for the weapons into law. Opposition MPs say the proposed definition would end up expanding to hunting rifles. This comes on top of the 1,500 models of military assault-style weapons already banned back in 2020. So was this amendment taking it a step too far? Well, joining me now is Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Minister, thanks for joining us. Answer me this. Bill 6, C-21, at committee stage right now, why are you adding these amendments now? Because it seems like there's a lot of confusion. Is this a problem in communications, or are you just putting in a lot more guns in there that people didn't expect? I'm going to come to that, but first I want to take a moment to acknowledge that it's the day before the 33rd anniversary of the Polytechnic shooting tragedy, and I've gotten to know some of the families of the victims as well as a survivor like Natalie Provo, mm -hmm. and it was in part thanks to their advocacy, the advocacy of Danforth families, the advocacy of um, uh, Women's Coalition for Gun Control, uh, that we committed when we tabled Bill C-21 that we would invite an amendment uh, that would be sure that we were doing everything that we needed to 
build on the order in council in May 2020. But even Heidi Rathjen, I hate to interrupt you, but since you brought it up, even Heidi Rathjen has said in an interview that it's a bit of a communications issue here because it's not every gun for every hunter. And so why aren't you being more clear about that? So I'm going to talk about communications, but I do want to round out my last answer, which is that our goal here, our intent all along, has been to target AR-15 style guns and obviously not to go after uh, hunters or to use uh, to target any kinds of guns that are commonly used for hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the reason why we're seeing so much confusion and fear is that there is a flooding of the zone of disinformation by some of the special interests, including uh, the Canadian uh, Center or Canadian Coalition for Firearms Rights, who not only uh, is suggesting that we're you know precisely targeting uh, gun owners, which is absolutely false, but is uh, equally uh, taking the opportunity to exploit uh, the worst femicide in this country's history uh, for profit. Uh, by using a, a poly uh, promotional code to, to to ramp up sales for its merchandise. And earlier today, I called on all members of the chamber to condemn the CCFR and to ask them to apologize to the victims and the survivors of the uh, of, of the Polytechnic uh, Institute shooting tragedy with whom we're going to be tomorrow. So Which is important, but equally is important, important is, is clearing it's up very which important. guns will and won't be. And why aren't and you being clear and about that's that? Why the, and well, we have been clear about that, and we are clear in a number of ways. First, you have an express number of models that are actually listed in uh, the schedule. So there can be no ambiguity about that because we're being very precise about it. Second, we've listened to experts, including from law enforcement, uh, about establishing some objective norms around muzzle force, around bore diameter. And by doing that, what we're really talking about are guns that are not used for for hunting, but rather guns that are designed for a war theater. And then finally, uh, what I've said all along is that we're going to work with the committee. We have a legislative process precisely to study the language of the bill. And we've always said we would keep an open door to improving it, including to be sure that the final product, the final bill, is completely in alignment with our government's goal, which is to target AR-15-style weapons, which have been used in some of the worst tragedies, and obviously not guns, which are commonly used for hunting. So this list is not the final list, then? You're going to pare it down? Uh, we're not going to prejudge the outcome of the of the committee. The committee does that work independently. So then, and why? But it's when you talk about flooding the zone, it seems like a number of uh, them were out there. A number of the, the different models were out there, and, we've and that since, leaves it open to the interpretation. Well, so is that not your fault? Well, look at this is not about ascribing blame. It's not about pointing fingers. That well, but is you not, just you just blamed not, some of the interest groups for it, saying that it's their fault for flooding the I zone. Think, so I'm asking you, why weren't you more precise in your list? In the particular instance of the CCFR, yes, that was an egregious overstep, and it was a slap in the face to every victim and survivor from the Polytechnic Institute. And you got to call a spade a spade. But in terms of the debate that is going on in the House, what we have said is that we're going to work with all parliamentarians. And yes. There is a process. And no, it is not final. And what we will do is we will make sure that the final product will target those guns that were designed to exert the greatest amount of lethal force in the shortest period of time and not obviously target those guns which are commonly used for hunting. Before I let you go, I have to ask you this question on a different topic. There was some reporting today that two additional Chinese police stations have been found in Canada. What is the government of Canada doing to make sure that we're looking at these, finding these alleged police stations and like stopping them or actually putting them out of operation? Well, first, we take allegations of foreign interference 
very, very seriously. And that is why, among other things, we struck an independent nonpartisan panel to confirm the integrity of the 2019 and 2021 elections as both free and fair. They did that after a rigorous review, a very rigorous review. Secondly, we're also cracking down on foreign funding. We passed in the last session Bill C-76 to make sure that third parties could not try to sway or influence the results of an elections. Um, thirdly, we passed Bill C-59. And what that included was additional threat reduction measures for CSIS, including potential threats through foreign interference to our national security, with the corresponding transparency around the creation of NSIRA and the NSI COP, so that we could be absolutely sure that all of these new tools are being exercised in a way that is charter compliant. What's most important for Canadians to, knew, to know is that we are eyes wide open about hostile state and non-state actors, and we will do whatever it takes to protect all of our democratic institutions, including obviously elections, so that Canadians can have their voices represented in government. So what do you do about these police stations then? And on police stations, look, you've seen some very, uh, I think, proactive uh, action taken by the RCMP who are on, on it. And they take those decisions independently, but we give them the tools, the resources that they need. We give the tools and the resources that the national security community needs to protect us against foreign interference. And nobody is Pollyannish about that. Everybody so is understands. That confirmation that the RCMP is investigating these two new allegations? Well, you've already seen them make statements that they are alive to uh, this particular threat. So... We're going to let them do their job. Mm -hmm. It's not for elected government uh, to be uh, piercing behind the veil and going uh, into operational independence. Uh, that is a principle that is uh, that this government re uh, respects very much. Uh, but we know that they've made statements in response to inquiries and we'll continue to put our confidence in them to do the job. Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, thank you so much for joining us as always. Still to come, bringing Canadians home. A lawsuit representing 23 Canadians in a Syrian detention camp is trying to do just that. And will that lawsuit be enough to pressure the federal government to take action? We'll talk to lawyer Lawrence Greenspawn from the court right after this break. A legal fight to bring Canadians <coughs> excuse me, home from a harsh detention camp in northeastern Syria starts a new chapter. A lawsuit representing 23 Canadians is trying to bring them back to Canadian soil, and it's putting the pressure on the federal government to bring the detainees back. The people at the heart of the lawsuit are among a 1,000 or a 1,000 of foreign nationals detained after war with the Islamic State. Many left their home countries to marry ISIS fighters. France, Australia, and Germany are among the countries to bring their women and children home, but Canada has so far remained or, or remained silent on doing the same. But could a global affairs reassessment finding dangerous security conditions and threats to the children's safety be enough to bring them home? Let's find out. Joining me now, right outside of the courthouse, is lawyer Lawrence Greenspawn. Mr. Greenspawn, thank you so much for making the time today. I wanted to ask you, you were just in court today fighting for these Canadians to come home. How much closer are they to realizing that dream? Well, when we started uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, we started with Amira, who was a five-year-old orphan uh, who was eventually repatriated. Uh, we then brought this group action on behalf of uh, 23 uh, 
men, women, and children that are Canadians that are in detention camps and prisons in northeastern Syria. Uh, about 10 days ago, the Global Affairs Canada did a 180-degree turn and said that all of the women that we are acting for and all of the children that we're representing uh, are now eligible for assessment for repatriation. So uh, certainly in terms of uh, Global Affairs Canada's position, uh, we're moving in the, in, in the right direction, and, and potentially that's very good news. Um, in terms of the court case, we uh, are, are saying, look, it's been 284 days since I first asked Global Affairs Canada to do what little needs to be done in order to repatriate these Canadians. And uh, uh, policies and, and talk is, is cheap. Uh, let's bring these uh, Canadian women, children and men, let's bring them home. I've got just a minute left, but I wanted to ask you, there's submissions in court tomorrow. What are you expecting to come out of it? Uh, tomorrow we'll hear the response from the lawyer for Global Affairs Canada, and then there will be a reply uh, to, their, to their submissions. And I, ex I fully expect uh, that His Honor, Mr. Justice Brown, will reserve his decision uh, until when, we don't know, but he's certainly very aware of the fact that the situation is uh, dire and urgent and uh, a decision needs to be made sooner rather than later. And we will continue to watch that. Lawrence Greenspawn, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate this. Sure. Thanks for your interest. Still to, still to come, as food prices in Canada are on the rise, how should the government address the growing crisis? One of the co-authors of the annual Canada Food Price Report joins our press gallery panel next on Power Play. There is pain in the grocery aisle. The annual Canada Food Price Report released today says there will be no relief in sight for food inflation as we, heard, as we head into the new year. Now, the report forecasts food prices will continue to rise between 5 and 7 percent in 2023. That roughly translates to a family of four's annual grocery bill rising by $1,065 next year. So what can be done to address the growing food affordability crisis in Canada? Let's bring in our press gallery panel. Joining me are CTV National News Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier, Toronto Star Queen's Park Bureau Chief Rob Benzie, and our special guest is University of Saskatchewan's Stuart Smythe. He's the co-author of the 2023 Canada Food Price Report. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Smythe, let's start with you. Why don't Canadians uh, see any relief with the food costs anytime soon? I mean, you're in Saskatchewan, a major agricultural centre in Canada. Is Canada not producing enough to meet domestic needs? We produce an abundance of, of products we're good at producing. So grains, oilseed, uh, meat. We're, we have to import a lot of things from other parts of the world, you know, particularly in the winter. So produce, vegetables, those kinds of things. And and it's the, the uncertainty in international commodity markets, the high cost of fuel and transportation, the, the shortage of labor in transportation. So all of those aspects factor into sort of the, the relentless pressure on, on food prices. Now, Joyce, the price of dairy is also going up, but we have supply management in this country. So is supply management failing here? 
Well, I mean, it's obviously failing consumers, perhaps not the, 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 the milk producers, but, you know, it's, it allows those milk producers to sell their milk at prices that are constant and stable. So why are we paying more? I mean, to Mr. Smythe's uh, point there, we do produce meat in this country. So is it supply chains, really? Mm -hmm. We do produce milk in this country. In fact, we produce a lot of stuff made in Canada here, and, and vegetables, perhaps not. We all know what kind of weather we have. So one wonders wh whether, you know, the, the food stores are just increasing their prices and more and more people are starting to think that they're getting gouged mm -hmm. because the, 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 the sugar last week is 50 cents more this week. How, how, how did it change 50 cents more this week? How, how come yogurt went up since last week? So you start looking more closely at these prices and you're wondering if it is the big food stores that are making huge profits and pocketing these profits and we are you know sort of the the ones that are paying more is it justified is the right. question and i think that's what people want to know am i paying a fair price for my food or am i getting gouged basically and, and rob i mean we do see governments are trying to do things. I mean, we heard that from yeah. Rachel Bendayan earlier on in the show that the government is asking the Competition Bureau to investigate any type of gouging. But do governments need to do more to intervene here? Well, I, I, I don't know, Mike. I mean, we, we see, we've seen with gas prices how, 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 how well have uh, Competition Bureau investigations into gasoline prices worked over the years. Not very. Um, so I think this is one of these situations where food prices are going up around the world. Uh, it's a perfect storm of Post-COVID, post-pandemic recovery, uh, you have labor shortages everywhere in North America, uh, and you have uh, a, a war in Ukraine that is that is you know changing uh, the uh, legal invasion of, by Russia of Ukraine that is causing lots of uh, cascading problems in Europe, uh, and then and maybe we're seeing some of the problems from that. So this is a really difficult situation, and I don't know what the answer is, and I don't think there is an easy answer. And the difficult thing, Mike, is that wages aren't going up by five to seven percent a year as food prices are. So that's a problem because people can't keep up. And Mr. Smythe, I mean, Rob just talked about that anger. Is it well placed either at governments or, or more at grocery food chains? Because people are upset that they're paying more and they're looking for help on either side. Yeah, I, I think he makes a good point that, that there's there's not a lot of evidence and certainly that the gas sector is a good one. We've looked at um, retail profitability by quarters going back over the last four or five years. And, and, and yeah, maybe there's the odd store in the odd quarter that, that has a significant uh, bump. But, but when we look at it over, you know, 120 months, there's, uh, th there's really uh, not a significant notice in, in what we would expect based on the prices we're seeing now. We're, we're not seeing a constant ramp up of, of retail sector profitability. And so, Joyce, is that something then, this greedflation? I mean, is this yeah. something that the NDP has a point on or not really anymore? If you can do it in 30 seconds, I'll get Benzie in on another well, 30. Well, because, you know, people are frustrated. <laughs> so, yes, right, uh, maybe it is greedflation or maybe it is supply chain. Something something's, is, is out there, except, again, we are producers here in Canada, mm -hmm. meat, dairy. So why is it going up this fast? Maybe we should cut the middleman and buy directly in the farm. Rob, are you going to farms like Joyce will be? <laughs> I, you know what, though, Mike? I do get sticker shocked when I go in the grocery store, especially when I look in, 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 in the healthier things, vegetables and, and fruit, things like that. 
the prices have really gone up and noticeably. You can't get a, a lettuce for 99 cents anymore. You're paying $3.99 or $4.99 for that head of lettuce that you may have thought in your head was around a dollar. So those are those those that's a sticker shock and and yeah, we all pay it. And Rob, we can tell that you're going to the uh, to the fruit and vegetables. You're looking great there, buddy. Really appreciate it. Rob Benzie from the Toronto <laughs> Star. Joyce Napier from CTV Ottawa here. And Dr. Smythe, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. That is your Power Play Day in politics. Thank you all for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Until then, have a great night.